Well, this is the uh, basic biblical theology class on scripture, general and special revelation. Before we get started, let me open in prayer for us, if I could. Father, I want to thank you for how uh, awesome you are that you have revealed yourself by your grace to us because you have desired a relationship with us. And I want to thank you that by your grace we've engaged in that relationship. You're transforming us, God. You're preparing us for heaven. You have, uh, you've done so much uh, in our lives and, and we're so grateful. We invite you to right now be here in our midst speaking to us by your spirit, revealing to us what we need to know about you so that we can grow even closer to you. So would you do that for us, Father, this morning? Be our teacher by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to tell me what was your favorite vacation or your dream vacation or dream place to live. Do you understand that question? Okay, I, I just figured a lot of hands would you. Yeah, I want to live in Hawaii. Yes, I want a vacation in Hawaii. I live in Florida, okay. man. This is where. Okay, there we go. This is God's paradise, Florida. Right, except for the months of June, July, August, September, yeah. sometimes October. Anyway. Okay, Sarah. Oh, no, I was just going to ask a question. Best vacation we've ever been on. Best vacation, or that you would like to go on? Yeah, Sarah. I've always wanted to go vacation in Antigua. Antica. Because the okay. waters are so blue and clear. Yes, gorgeous. You know, just the other day I was looking on the on a, on a magazine, and it showed this. It says your own cabana, floating in the in the ocean. Now it's not like hundreds of feet deep or anything. It was probably only twenty feet deep, but you know you can. It's your little cottage with a, a roof that you can sunbathe and dive off and swim and all of this. And I thought, would that be cool and what? And then they give you an underwater <laughs> shot, and there's another. <clears throat> room that's underwater. How would you like to wake up in the morning surrounded by water? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Okay, other other, pla- other places to vacation. See? Tahiti. Tahiti. And why Tahiti? Pretty much the same thing, but better clear waters. Oh, better oh, than Antigua. Oh, okay. All right, somebody else? Uh, <laughs> Yellowstone National Park. Okay, the Yellowstone. Geysers. That was the geysers, the Old Faithful. I remember as a boy visiting Old Faithful, and it is absolutely faithful when it goes off, isn't it? Amazing. Okay, anybody else? We, I, I, we registered Florida. Okay. Anybody else? And I think what we find is... Okay, Julianne, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say what I went to this past week probably with my family. That would be like my new vacation. All right. And obviously there was spiritual impact. Julianne sent some photos of a sunset over a lake, mountains in the background, you know, and you just, it's like, God, why aren't I there with you? All right. And many times we love these vacation spots because they are so absolutely beautiful. And it, it's what, what, a, what a, a privilege for us to be able to enjoy God's creation like this. And God's creation is very unique. We're hoping to be able to go to Germany in 2017 to, for the Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, the 500th anniversary. And I'm sure Germany is going to be very crowded. Um, 
but we're looking forward to seeing like the Swiss Alps and uh, visiting places in Germany like that. So we're going to hook up with Patrick and Donna, um, and it, we're looking forward to it. Germany is very beautiful. We want to see the castles there and this type of thing. But that's creation. I believe God speaks to us through His creation in a very, very unique way. Psalm 19 that you read for homework says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. We could continue on. Powerful passage. Here's my question. How... Does God, how does God's creation speak or glorify God? How does it do that? Somebody. Leanne? When I'm um, <clears throat> enjoying something in nature, uh, like a sunrise or feeding the ducks that I like to do daily, it gives me joy <laughs> in my heart, and I think that glorifies God. Okay. So your response to it and being amazed and enjoying it is, yes. is brings glory to God. Okay, all right. Sarah? I think creation reveals that there is a God and okay. that He exists and there's order and there's laws and it reveals His character. And okay, all right. We're, we're going to pursue that. Juge? Um, and with the whole there's order and nature revealing the character of God, one thing that we were talking about this past week is that like all of creation is set up to bring forth life. And so to me, like I think that's such an amazing aspect of God that the entire universe, the stars, the moon, the sun, like all, you know, the water cycle, it's all there to support life. And so you can tell that that's the heart of God. And yes. so then that translates into the kingdom of God by like, you know, the heart of God is that we would be brought to life from death. Okay. And so, I, I don't know, to me, it's, you know, right. if you look at everything, it's just life, life, life. Very good. So, okay. Not just physical life, but if we really look at it and the corruption of man, we would want to ask that next next question, is, is, this, is this all there is for man in his corruption? Is there not more? And so it would speak of a spiritual life as well. Okay, good. And in a relationship with that creator. We're going to get into that in just a moment. Um, (laughs) Here's something that you learn. The more you study science, and I've kind of toe-dipped in this, is that the earth is extremely, extremely unique. When you start adding up the probabilities... um, the position that our that our galaxy is in the Milky Way. If it were in, there's many other positions that we could be in that there would just be too much. Uh, what, what, what did they call too much debris, too much uh, radiation, etc. Um, in and it would make life impossible. We are we are actually positioned in the Milky Way perfectly for life on Earth. The distance from the sun, the slant of the Earth, the the type of sun that we have, um, the size of our planet, um, on and on the different cycles that we have. Uh, all of these things, the, the question that scientists are asking, of course, is, is there life on other planets? And we have come up with a huge goose egg, and I think we're going to continue to do that, honestly. 
And that says something about the uniqueness of the earth that runs in parallel with what Scripture teaches. That God has a unique plan and that plan is unfolding on this planet. Okay? Not unfolding on other planets. You know, they even sent out radio waves out into the universe to see if there would be any other creatures that would respond to it. Now, good luck with that. And, and it's because the, the, the probabilities of there being life on any other planets truly are infinitesimal because of everything that is required for life. Okay? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Let's kind of unpack this concept of God's creation and what it says to us. And when I say us, I don't just mean Christians. I mean every single person born on planet Earth. And I'm going to read this particular paragraph because uh, I, I want us to look at some things with it. Starting with verse 18, you can see that this is from the, the, your notes here, Romans 1, 18 to 20. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. What we're talking about here, it's not just plain to you, it's plain to every single poor person born on planet Earth. What, what is plain, we're going to look at more closely. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What about God is revealed? What about God is revealed? The wrath wrath of God is being revealed. Men suppress it. But Paul is saying here, they do so because they are purposefully doing it because there's something that is absolutely clearly seen in God's creation. And my question then is, what is it that when what is it that is clearly seen in God's creation? Two things. His eternal power and divine nature. His eternal power and his divine nature. Now I, I would suggest to you <clears throat> that every single person, not just us, not just believers in Christ who've been regenerated and whose eyes have been opened and we can understand God's creation and his revealed word in the scriptures, but to every single person who has been born on the face of this earth, they're going to see, when when we look out at this creation and we see its vastness, and I, I would suggest that the clear speech, discourse, that is being revealed to us through all of this is not that it happened by accident. First, the the two major stumbling blocks that evolutionists and atheists must account for that they cannot is how did this universe even begin? And number two, how did life from how did life begin from non-life? Because both of because the these two things cannot happen naturally to say they happen naturally is to contradict the very laws of nature. Okay, Life cannot come from non-life and something can never come from nothing. 
All right? And so, uh, moving past that, when we look at this creation, we see its vastness. We see the power of waterfalls. We see the power of storms and hurricanes. And it says something about power, okay? And, and even to create something from nothing, obviously power. So we can clearly see God's power. I believe we can also clearly see this, whoever it is, and, and I'm speaking from a, a non-Christian perspective, looking at a creation, I would have to conclude that this being who created all of this is creative, all right? He just didn't give us a barren planet. He gave us a beautiful planet. And you guys testified to that in all of these places that you would love to vacation in. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. This, this being that created all things did so with precision. These laws that are enacted in our universe are absolutely precise. And the more you study it, the more you step back and are completely, utterly amazed at how precise these laws of physics are. Um, and, and just something, if you're ever interested, um, if you've, how many of you have ever heard of the golden mean? The golden mean, okay? Um, and that is that in creation, there is this principle of, for, uh, uh, it's more precise than this, but three by five, okay? Um, the, the arrangement of our galaxy. It appears that there's one planet missing, but it works that way. When you look at petals, it would be this way. It would be um, one, and then three petals, and then five petals, and then working out that way. Um, when you, just your aesthetics, when you look at something, you want to look at not a square, but you want to look at something that's three by five. What are the dimensions of most screens? Approximately three by five. Approximately. Um, we actually, I mean, there's hundreds of things that are based on this 3 by 5 principle. Wow, why? There's something inbred in us, this, what they call the golden mean, um, that's, it's inerrant, inherent in us. Mean. Mean. M-E-A-N. Golden mean. But God is a, God, this creature that created, this being, excuse me, that created is he does so with beauty. He's creative. He has aesthetic value. I think we would have to conclude that. He is vastly intelligent. I mean, physics, physicists and all scientists, they're still trying to discover what this being has created and its incredible complexity. And they're still trying to wrap their minds around it. We are still trying to understand this universe. Incredibly complex. Um, if you ever want to blow your mind, just start studying cosmology. Wow. Amazing. I think we would have to give a value judgment and say that this being is good. Because he created beauty. He created it on a planet that is absolutely unique. It's as if there is this plan that he had in mind in this creation, and he has placed man at its pinnacle. Is there anyone here who would disagree that whoever this being might be, that he created man as the pinnacle of his creation? I think that would be a natural conclusion. 
And so therefore, with man at the apex of his creation, we don't want to just say, and and again, I'm speaking from a non-Christian perspective, trying to think through this, this being who created man at the apex of his creation did it for man. And so his, his eternal plan that he has inaugurated is with man at his focal point, planet Earth as his focal point. Well, planet Earth is a focal point. Man as his focal point on planet Earth. There is something about man that God had at his very heart. Or this being who created at his very heart. And I think it's fair to say that this beauty that we experience, it's not just for him, it is for us. And Leanne, you talked about enjoying this creation. Could we not conclude that in doing this for us, it was for our enjoyment. All right? So I think that we can say that this being is good. This being is loving. I think we could also conclude that this being, since when we look at who we are, these are all the very things that are in us. And we could go through certain character qualities that we can observe that this being must have and we have them as well interesting scripture puts it this way God created man in his image and I think that's even from a non-Christian perspective that is a fair conclusion if we were to assess this world we would also have to say but wait a second I see bad things. And I put that in quotes. I see bad things in this world. I see the evil of men, and I'm going to call it evil because it seems to be contrary. If this God did this for me, this, is, this now begins my understanding of goodness. But men, many times, don't do things for one another. They do things against one another and hurt them. And so we're beginning to develop this concept of morality. And actually, as you look in Romans chapter 2, and let's just do that for a moment. Romans 2, 14 and 15, it says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness. Their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. There is this consciousness about man, this conscience of man. And we all share this. Why is it that in every culture, except maybe a few in the third world, uh, very, what we would say, uncivilized. I think that would be a fair terminology for, to describe them. But in every civilization, there is something that says in the heart of man that murder is wrong. Why? They would say that stealing is wrong. Why? That implies, by the way, ownership or property. 
Um, this is inbred in man. God created us. This being created us like this. And to be stewards of that property. And so that when someone takes that which belongs to us, we consider it wrong. Our consciences say that's wrong. When, if you were to ask an atheist concerning morality, why do they believe that... Um, I'm going to be really blunt here. Pedophilia or sexual acts against a child. Why is that wrong? As a matter of fact, if, if someone has done this, even criminals are opposed to it. When you go to prison, you get beaten up. I'm sure you've heard stories of this. You might even get killed. Why? There's something in us, even in those whose hearts are wicked, that that type of thing is wrong. Well, if I were to go, if I were to see that happen in another country, would it not be right for me to condemn that and say, that's wrong, and there should be a law? But the atheist is compelled to say, well, that's your personal opinion. Because for them, there's no absolutes, because there's no God who created these laws. You arrive at that conclusion only because that's your personal opinion, which, by the way, is shared by everyone on planet Earth, every culture on planet Earth. Is that just coincidence? I think a fair assessment would say these things cannot be a coincidence. The atheist himself would say, well, there's some exceptions here. And I'm sure they would philosophize to try and rationalize why we should impose that value on other cultures. If another culture were to say, pedophilia is all right, we would say, no, that's wrong. And we would have the right to say that because there's something in us that says, no, absolutely not. It's wrong. Why? Because the law of God is written on our heart. It's written on every unbeliever's heart. Now, the question then is, well, wow, there are some things in which we're going to debate about. There are some things in which cultures will veer off from that in their view of war, for example, cannibalism, <clears throat> these types of things. They are, there's few of those, but they exist. Why is that? We would arrive at some questions. What is it about evil in this world? It's present. And I believe these are fair conclusions. They contradict what I see around me in this nature of this God, this divine nature that Romans 1 talks about, that I see in this creation, and evil runs contrary to it. And we must arrive at some conclusion. Paul says, whatever conclusion you come to, if you disagree that there is a God, then you are without excuse before that God. And that this God has actually revealed from heaven his wrath. Now, I believe that it is very specifically revealed in Scripture, but that wrath is even revealed, and I think we can come to a fair conclusion that this is God's wrath when we look around and we see some of these bad things. These storms and tornadoes and mudslides and tsunamis and so on. And, and it, it's... It's not like they happen everywhere, all around us, all the time. There is far more good than there is these evil acts. And I think it's a fair, a fair judgment to say that bad things happen and to ask the question, why? Could it not be God's judgment? Now that may not be as clear, but God, excuse me, but Paul does say, that when everyone stands before God, 
they will be called to account. Even those who have not had the scriptures or the gospel preached to them. I do believe that because of all of this that I have shared and these scripture passages, that we would come to a very fair conclusion that this creator created us as his focal point and since he's loving and when we experience love do, do we do it in isolation? No, there's something in us that yearns to have a relationship with other people because it's in that context that we love. Can you love in isolation? Can you love apart from other people or apart from God? No. By definition, love must be expressed. It is not just a feeling in our mind, our heart, our being. And so this God that is loving wants a relationship with us. I believe these are fair conclusions from what we see in this creation. So if God loves us and He would want a relationship with us, how does that happen? So here is, apart from the corruption of sin, understand, here is the natural response that we are held to account because we do not pursue it. We should say, I want a relationship with this Creator. This is what I want. And I believe that if we truly humbled ourselves before that Creator, that He would reveal Himself to us. Because, of course, the question is always, what about those in third world countries and the Gospels never preached to them? How could God ever send them to hell? Well, because of their sin, just like us, they have turned away from this God because there is something in them that wants to rebel against this God. And the darkness we learned last night in John 3 does not want to come into the light. And so it is natural for man to reject God. And so we, we, we're pulling these pieces of the puzzle together and we have questions, but there is this sense of inevitability that I need to have this relationship with God and there is something in me that repels that. And so we must have the scriptures in order to take that next step to have this full revelation of this God and how I can now step into this relationship with this Creator. So, creation is an incomplete revelation of this God. But Paul says it is sufficient so that no one can give God an excuse. Because God could say, then why didn't you seek me? Now, look at Cornelius. Cornelius came to the conclusion, there is a God. As a matter of fact, he believed that that God was revealed in the Old Testament. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. We read about him in, in Acts chapter 10. And Cornelius feared this creator and an angel appeared to him and said, go and speak to this man Peter, told, where he, told him where he was, because he, needs, he has some good news for you. God initiated with Cornelius this revelation, or, or, or brought him to the point where man, Peter, could speak this revelation. 
Because here's what we do know. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that angels proclaim the gospel. That is up to you and me. And so I would venture to say that God, at least in part, could respond to someone in the deepest jungles of Africa or the Amazon, anywhere, and if they are truly humbling themselves and seeking God, that God would send them someone in response to that heart cry to reveal yourself to me, send them someone who could preach the gospel to them. I think we see this in, in many cultures. If you've ever read um, Eternity in Your Hearts by Richardson, what's his first name? I don't okay. If you've never had a chance to read the book Eternity in Their Hearts, you have got to read that book. Just as far as, as how God has ripened and prepared numerous cultures, placed in them what he calls redemptive analogies, to set them up to yearn for this God. And God sending the missionaries, uh, proclaiming the gospel. And when the missionaries come, you don't have just a few responding. We have thousands and thousands. We have entire cultures responding. And, and it's just amazing the outpouring of God's grace on these people groups. Just, so if you never had a chance to read that book, I'm going to recommend that you do that. But my point is, as much as creation reveals about God, it is incomplete. And we must have the aid of Scripture. Scripture is clear. Scripture is sufficient to reveal to us everything that we need to know, not want to know, but what we need to know about this God that created us and how I can have a relationship with Him and how I can grow in this relationship with Him. And it's powerful, and we're going to look at that uh, two weeks from now, the power and authority of, of Scripture. Um, but it has the power and authority to transform me. So, Scripture is absolutely necessary. It says in Romans... Uh, no, I'm going to hold off on that. I'm going to come to that in a moment. If we were to go back to Psalm 19, we see the, lack of a better term, the duality of God's revelation. The first six verses speak of God revealing Himself through creation... And then you're going to see under special revelation, special or specific revelation is what theologians call it, refers to scripture. God's general revelation refers to creation. So special revelation is his scriptures. And the next 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 5. i got to count on my fingers sometimes. Five verses, the next five verses, the first six creation, the next five is this special revelation that we're referring to. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The law is good. I want you to tell me just a little bit about Scripture. Just based on these five passages, describe it for me. What do you see there? Psalm 19. It's perfect, okay? Um, Scott? I just wrote in my notes that living by the Lord's law is of a kind he has set for us so that we can sh- share his joy and obtain our reward. Okay, all right. That's a good summary, I think. Mm-hmm. It's simple. Okay, it's simple. 
All right. It revives our soul. It revives our soul. Think of the implications just of that. Man in his fallen condition, it revives, it brings life to the soul of one who is dead in their sin. It can. Aisha? It's pure. It's pure. Okay, the fear of the Lord, which is now our response to his special revelation. Okay, Juliana? It's trustworthy, so it remains the same. All right. I, I just think it's so cool that like the word of the Lord, or the word of God in text is reveals the word of God in person. Good. And Jesus mm-hmm. was and is and is to come like he's always the same. And so the word of God mm-hmm. in text is the same way. Okay. And so it, it's fully trustworthy. We don't have to worry about culture or, you know, anything. Very else. important. It, Good. It is, <clears throat> and it was, and it is to come. Okay. Good. Aisha, more? Sure, and altogether riches. Okay. Good. Yes, Rachel. It's better than even, like, the most precious things in creation, like gold and honey. Okay. All right. This is a very positive assessment of of God's revealed word to us. Now, I'm kind of tempted to get into how Jesus is the word of God. I'm not going to do that. We're going to do that when we look at Jesus many, many weeks from now. All right? Um, but just very interesting why uh, God led John to tell us that Jesus in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God and the word was God. What is the word? Why did he choose Logos, the word? Um, Really some profound uh, truths in that. Uh, For another time, though. So this is God's special revelation. This this book, this Bible, these scriptures, and by the way, scripture, at least in um, in the New Testament, is hegraphe, which is the writing or the writings in the plural. So, Scripture implies it's written down. It's not just oral, verbal. It's written down. Um, but it is... Graphe? Yeah. Graphe or... Hey, let's just hygraphy. It would be G-R-A-P-H. It's a fee. A-I. So, it's in the plural. So, it's not just a writing. It is writings. So it's the writings. And so that is, Scripture is our translation of that Greek term, uh, the writings. That's the literal translation. Okay? Uh, if we were to look at Colossians 1, 25 to 26, and Ephesians 3, 1 to 6, and verse 9, we would also have to say that this revelation of God is progressive. Because we come across this very interesting term, Mystery, the mystery of the gospel, the heart of which, the revelation of which, is Jesus Christ. And we we would have to conclude that those in the Old Testament living under the law during that time, that the scriptures that they had, all 66 books, revealed only a limited um, revelation of this God that created them and invites us to have a relationship with Him. And we would have to say that in the New Testament, now we have the full revelation of this God. 
This is the concept of mystery. Mystery does not mystery does not mean something that's hidden so that you can't find it. See, that's that was the basic premise of the Gnostics. Gnostics, Gnostics or Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. Um, G-N-O-S-I-S meaning knowledge and they believed in a secret knowledge a mystery if you will that only the elite Christians would discover and be able to enjoy and so there are different classes or levels of Christianity and their goal is let me teach you this mystery that of course the Bible didn't reveal because the apostles of Jesus were insufficiently equipped to reveal it. But they of course had this final truth and they talked about uh, the different eons or gods in the universe and, and it really revealed a combination of New Testament Christianity and uh, Greek philosophy. And so they, they, they it, it kind of opened the doors to... Um, a synthesism of religion and philosophy, of uh, believing that the God of the Old Testament was an evil God, and the God of the New Testament was a good God, and his son was Jesus. And in mythology, what you have are you have these good and bad gods battling it out, representing to us the battle of good and evil. But scripture does not reveal this type of dualism. Dualism is two forces equally opposing one another. But that is not the... God and Satan is a complete and total mismatch. And scripture continually reveals this. Michael the archangel in Revelation 12 defeated the devil and his minions. Um, God didn't even have to step in and, and zap him or do whatever God could do or would do or will do. No, he, it was Michael the archangel that took care of uh, that took care of Satan and kicked him out of heaven, hurled him down to earth and such. Satan lost that battle. I believe that battle took place at the cross. I'm going to save that for another time. But there, we do not live in a universe in which there is this type of dualism between good and evil. The, the Greeks believed that, and so they created this religion with dual powers, the good gods and the bad gods. And even within the good gods, there was some evil, and even within the bad gods, like Hades, there was some good. And they were duking it out, and that is not what we have revealed to us about this God that created us. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He is, he is so powerful, he is infinitely more powerful than Satan and sin. Infinitely. There's, there's no contest here whatsoever. And, and as we look in the providence of God another week, Satan, it, Satan can be viewed simply as a pawn playing out the will of God. I'm going to kind of dangle that a little bit and we'll, we'll talk about it another time. But th- this, is, th- this is no contrast between good and evil like this. This is God, supreme, triumphant, allowing evil only to work for his ultimate purposes. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that, that another time. But we have here, getting back to the main point, a mystery, God's progressive revelation fully revealed 
in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ, elaborated or spoken of by the gospel. That's what the gospel does. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we have this profound statement by the author of Hebrews that says that in times past, God spoke to us by uh, our forefathers, to our forefathers, by prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, now he's not talking about the end of the age, uh, i.e., you know, when the Antichrist is revealed and, and the, what we might call the apocalypse. He's not talking about the end of the end of the age. He's talking about the day that we live in. From the time of Jesus, the establishment of this kingdom of God, until Christ returns, these are the last days, and he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Uh, awesome passage. I, I'm just going to have to leave it at that and touching on that passage, but God has revealed his who he is to us through Jesus, and this now begins to get into this concept of why Jesus is the word, and I'm only going to say this, and that, that's all I promise. But the spoken word, the Logos, is the exact representation of one's thought. Is it not? God is that thought. Jesus is that spoken word. And the only difference is one is audible and one is not. One can therefore be comprehended by others and one is not. So therefore, you know, this, this idea that Jesus is not God, just the concept of him being the Logos reveals to us the, the exact opposite. No, he, he must be. It's just that he's now in flesh and we can see him and touch him and such. He is the revealed word of God. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. And so, but Jesus has revealed to us perfectly this awesome God who is invisible that no man has seen except in Jesus. And God speaks to us through him. Now this brings us to the concept of the canon that I want us to look at over the next half hour. Because scripture reveals to us this awesome God that he's, that's powerful, that's cre- that has, uh, has aesthetic values and, and creates beauty. He's vastly intelligent, logical. He's good. He's loving. He only allows bad things, does not create them. He's moral, if you will, and, and desires a relationship with him and actually invites us to respond and have a relationship with him. There's some questions, of course, that we see concerning bad things and how evil plays in it and how evil is a part of us. And there's something in us that yearns to be freed from that, isn't there? Even as an unbeliever, we get this sense that the world is weary under this load of what the Bible reveals to us is sin. This is sin that you're dealing. It's not just bad things. It's not just this bad in us. This is sin in us. And it wants to repel God. And it leads us then, even creation leads us to saying there's something wrong with me and, and I need to have this relationship, this yearning, a, a relationship uh, with this God. And that happens through this ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ in his scriptures, in the gospel. And Romans 10, and I know that's not in your notes, but Romans 10... Mm-hmm. 
verses, verse 14. I'm, I'm going to read, yeah, just, just verse 14 I think is sufficient. It says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? For us to be saved, we must have the gospel. We must have this revelation of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And we cannot, without scripture, come to this conclusion of Jesus of his death on the cross, and then of us stepping into this relationship with this creator through Jesus Christ, who has told us that I'm lost, even dead in my sins, and I need to be rescued. And it's only as I have faith in him that this can happen. That is the gospel. That is what is revealed in scripture. This is what we need. That is why creation is insufficient. I've I've heard... Some creationists, uh, they tend to fall more in the camp of old earth creationists. I think that would be a fair assessment. And I'm not saying all old earth creationists say this. But they would say that creation is the 67th book of the Bible. And I'm just going to challenge you that that is completely untrue. That is a fair, unfair assessment of both creation and scriptures. I believe it's based on... An, an error in our understanding of these things and it's going to lead us to some scary conclusions that somehow creation is inerrant but we observe creation it doesn't speak to us it like the scriptures do it speaks to us about certain things about God but the written word is clear it requires far less interpretation than my observations of creation. So I I want to be careful. Scripture is inerrant. That means without error. And it is clear. We cannot say that about creation. So again, just caution. Creation and us observing it leads us to this, I believe, naturally, leads us to this dilemma that cries out within the heart of man, how do I resolve this issue in my life I want to do good, but I cannot do it. Romans 7. That is the dilemma that every single creature, uh, human creature that God has created under the heavens, deals with. Mm-hmm. And it leads us to this answer that is only found in Scripture. Only found in the Gospel. Remember, it is the Gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Not creation but the gospel that is the heart of the revealed word of God. Okay? So, this concept of the canon, the question, I think, is fair to ask when we're talking about the revealed word of God, when we're talking about the special revelation of God, when we're talking about the scriptures, what are the scriptures? Why do we say that there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the New, 27 in the, excuse me, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New? Why do we say that there are only those, no more, no less? That is a very fair question. Why do we, we're selective. What is it about these books that has led God's people to say this, no more, no less? Very fair question. So I'm going to spend the next 25 minutes answering that. Um, 
Deuteronomy. First I want to talk about the Old Testament. Then we'll talk about the New. Deuteronomy 4.2 If you could turn to to that passage in in your Bible. This is Moses. He has penned the first five books of the Bible. Genesis is more probably a um, a uh, compiling of other writings that he then wrote down, edited, etc. And Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he penned himself. Okay? We have these five books. Deuteronomy 4.2 says, Do not add to what I commanded you and do not subtract to it. But keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. This is Moses speaking. Don't add to what I'm commanding you and don't subtract from it. Okay. Then how is it that the very next book in my Bible, Joshua, is in my Bible? If Moses says, don't add to it, and don't subtract from it. Uh, that's, a, that's a very valid question. Do you, uh, do you understand why we would want to ask that question? If Moses in the, his last book, book number five, says don't add to this or subtract from it, then why does Joshua, the heir, if you will, the successor of Moses, do that? Moses would have been standing right there hearing this. Don't add to this. Don't subtract from it. And yet he did? Wow. See, this is, this is the reason, or at least part of the reason, why the Sadducees held only to the first five books of the Bible, Moses' writings, and no more. The others were good works, good writings, but they were not inspired like the first five books. So they didn't believe in various things. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, etc., etc. Jesus, of course, disagrees with them. Jesus quotes from other scripture passages. Scripture passages. Okay? Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and he puts that on the same level of inspiration as the first five books of the Bible. Why does Joshua, that's my first question, why does Joshua seemingly contradict what Moses commanded him not to do? Did, did, did someone want to venture? Scott, you want to give a stab at this? Yeah. Uh, well, the beginning is, is talking about law. And I think what the command is is not to add and subtract to the law. Okay. Because um, the, others, the others are, what you say, scripture. Okay. They're not law. All right. Fair enough assessment of that. Um. I'm not going to disagree with that but I think there's more to it that we need to wrestle with because if we're going to write anything would it not reveal the heart of God his morality even therefore his laws Um, and if that's the case wouldn't it add to that mosaic law, and I would I would venture a guess at saying yes, it would. I would say yes, it would. 
And so I think we're still, I hear what you're saying, the Mosaic Law, don't, don't, don't say something and say it's a part of the Mosaic Law, but I think he's getting at more, don't say something that is going to add to God's commands. So any commands, even though you may not term it Mosaic Law, any commands that is now on equal authority with the Mosaic Law, God's commands... And so, here is what people have, come, have concluded. There is no way that Joshua would ever have added to the Old Testament if God had not told him to. Actually, in Joshua chapter 24, and go there with me if you would, Joshua 24, 26, Joshua 24, 26, it says here, And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. He then took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. Joshua must have been directed by the Lord to record these and make them a part of the law of God. And and outside of the thinking of the the Sadducees, the Jews embraced this concept. This is what Joshua must have done. These things were revealed to Joshua and he wrote them down. So Joshua... And I'm speaking technically here, and very specifically, Joshua did not add, God did. And if God added it, it must be inspired by him. So do you understand the reasoning there? So when, when, you're, when you come down to... Um, I'll, I'll speak to the Apocrypha in just a moment. Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith believed that an angel gave him some golden tablets, the interpretation of which was revealed to him in his hat, if I'm understanding the story correctly, and as he would peer into this hat, the words would be revealed to him and he would write them down. This is clearly not a revelation of God. It is, it is forcing us to believe Number one, that his story is true, because no one ever saw those golden tablets but him. That is suspicious. The same thing with Mohammed. No one (coughs) witnessed the angel speaking to Mohammed. Only Mohammed did. When Jesus revealed himself, when God spoke from Mount Sinai, did he not do it in the presence of many people? In the mouths of two or three witnesses, truth is established, or something is established as truth. And God understands this, and he always did it. Always. There are no exceptions. When God revealed his inspired truth, it was always in the presence of many witnesses and embraced by many as a result. Okay? Mohammed? No. Just one person. Joseph Smith? No. Just one person. And so, uh, we are forced not just to believe uh, Joseph Smith's story, we're also forced to believe that there were golden tablets 
that we do not have today, interesting, that these golden tablets actually were not the words of Satan himself deceiving the people, hmm, mm-hmm. but that they were words of God. They got lost, and they got uncovered and revealed now in late 1800s to Joseph Smith himself, the apostle of God, as he <laughs> referred to himself. And, and we would have to say, this is not how God revealed himself by the other 66 books. And, and what we need to do is we need to come up with some principles. How is it that we can be selective? Why is it that we can say, no, Muhammad is wrong. No, Joseph Smith is wrong. No, the Apocrypha, to some degree, good books, but they are not scripture. Okay? So we would have to say, <clears throat> number one, that Deuteronomy 4.2 says, do not add to God's commands. And if you do, it is because God has commanded you and others bear witness. Joshua 24.26. Number three, we would Jesus quoted from the Old Testament books and he agreed with them. Number four, <clears throat> it says in 1 Maccabees that, the, that, that there was a need of a prophet to in, interpret something for them, but there, but the, there were no prophets in their day. Very fair conclusion to say, okay, if there are no prophets in their day, First Maccabees should not be put in with Scripture. It shouldn't be canonized. Now, the early church did not do that. It was only later in the Roman Catholic Church that they canonized First Maccabees, Second Maccabees, and so and the Apocrypha in general. But that clearly was not the intention when 1 Maccabees was being written. Josephus himself <clears throat> excuse me, states that the history of between 435 AD from Artaxerxes to his present, which he wrote in the late 1st century, was not equal. Those writings, history, was not equal to the early prophets. That was his assessment. When Jesus spoke of the Old Testament and the writings of the Old Testament, people did not disagree with any passage that he quoted from. Jesus and those people, apart from the Sadducees, and we do see arguments there, okay, such as concerning marriage, if you remember that particular story, and, and Jesus says, I'm sorry, but you got it all wrong. You don't believe in the power of God and in his, his, his scriptures that Jesus believed that the present day understanding of what the canon was excluding the Apocrypha that that was what should be termed the scriptures the inspired word of God Um, there were don't get me wrong there were other writings that even these books speak of second uh, excuse me Books that these uh, prophets who wrote scripture wrote. Now write some of these scripture passages. I'm going to give you three of them. Second Chronicles 26.22. Second Chronicles 26.22. Write fast. First Samuel 10.25. First Samuel 10.25. First Chronicles 29.29. 1 Chronicles 29.29 29. 
that some of those authors or prophets of the Old Testament that wrote Scripture wrote other books that were not included in Scripture. And we would have to say, why is that? Why weren't there? Why weren't they included? The book of Jasher that <clears throat> excuse me, the book of Jasher that um, Joshua speaks of. Uh, the Mormons believe that this book of Jasher should be included in Scripture. But Jesus never quoted from it. Je- no person during the time of Jesus who referred to Scripture included that book. I don't think it would be fair for us to try and do that in our present day. In addition to the very fact that what we have discovered and have turned and have called the book of Jasher may not be the book of Jasher that Joshua is talking about. Okay? It may not be. Alright? So I am I am and it does have a certain view of like the sons of God going into the daughters of men in, in Genesis six. And I, I'm gonna say caution, the book of Jasher was never included in Scripture of the Old Testament, so let's not start doing that today. But let's not do that. Jesus didn't do it. We shouldn't do it. Um, <clears throat> concerning um, the Apocrypha, we have to realize that the assessment was these were good books, but there were errors in them. They did tend to contradict other teachings in the Old Testament, which is another criteria that we're going to need to use for the New Testament. Let me just walk you through this. Number one, under un- con- concerning the Apocrypha. This is number eight concerning the Apocrypha. Seven was other writings from the Old Testament prophets that weren't included in canon, and they did so for a reason. They did not recognize it as Scripture. Okay, So, <clears throat> under the Apocrypha, they did not claim, those writers of the Apocrypha did not claim inspiration. They did not consider, excuse me, they did not claim that they had the same authority as the other Old Testament books. Number two, the Jewish people did not consider them as scripture. They didn't accept them as scripture. Again, let me reiterate, that didn't happen until much later in the church. Number three, Jesus and other New Testament authors did not consider them scripture. Here we need to refer to the quote in Jude um, in which he quotes from the book of Enoch, which is an apocryphal book, the book of Enoch. And he quotes from it saying that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. And it continues on with this quote, talking about the revelation of God from heaven in Jesus. We would term the second coming of Jesus and bringing his judgment to ungodly men. By Jude incorporating this in his letter, which is inspired of that, and we'll get to the reasons for that later, Jude includes this quote from Enoch and we would have to then say that does not compel me to accept all of the book of Enoch as inspired of God but that this that he this passage that he attributes to Enoch truly is a quote from Enoch who lived, if you look in Genesis chapter 5, a long, long time ago, before the flood even, that that was preserved, and I would venture to say 
that whether it was verbal or written down, it was written down, then Noah had it on the ark, and it was included within the ten Toledoths of Genesis, and it, that, that was a true prophecy that came from Enoch that the book of Enoch included, and Jude recognizes it. Now, do you understand what I just said? And, and I would have to say, we need to come to this conclusion, because guess what? Acts 17, Paul quotes from Epimenides, who was a, considered to be a prophet around 600 BC amongst the Greeks, but we as followers of Jesus Christ would not consider him a prophet. Though God may very well have done some very interesting things through him, he certainly was not a prophet of God. But Paul quotes from him, he, he quotes from other authors. And he does so in Titus chapter 1. He quotes from them. But this does not mean that what these men that he quotes from, these Greek philosophers, were inspired of God. It's just that what he, they said right there, that, was from the, that revealed the heart of God. Mm-hmm. To the degree that as he quotes it, it is God-breathed. But he is not in any way placing this stamp of approval on all of their writings or the entire book of Enoch or anything like this. Okay? Because these are, these are unsaved, ungodly men. Even Caiaphas himself prophesied, John 11 says, that Jesus would need to die for the entire nation. And John tells us that he prophesied about Jesus. But Caiaphas was an enemy of Jesus and an enemy of God. A donkey spoke the words of God. Okay? And it's in my Bible. And, and he, he, spoke, he spoke a revelation of God. A donkey who's not even a man or has the mind of a man, God used him. Okay? So it doesn't mean that God can't at times speak through people, but it is... The New Testament apostle, and we're going to get into this now when we get into the New Testament and why we accept 27, not 28 or 25 books, but these apostles said amen to these quotes and no more. And they had the authority of Jesus to do that. So I don't want us to say that the assumption of Moses, which is a, it's a passage quoted in Jude as well from quoted from the Assumption of Moses in Jude, is inspired of God, or the Book of Enoch is an inspired book of God and should be included in the canon. It's just that these men of God who were commissioned to write Scripture selected them and said, yes, this is, is inspired. This God spoke. Okay? And then lastly, number four, um, the concerning the Apocrypha, they contain teachings contrary to the rest of Scripture. Therefore, no other book should be added. The canon of the Old Testament has been closed. We now come to the canon of the New Testament. We have what is called the pseudepigrapha. Say that ten times fast. Pseudepigrapha. Okay? That means the false writings. The false teachings. 
These would be things like um, <clears throat> excuse me. These would be things like the um, the Gospel of Nicodemus or the Gospel of Peter. These were false writings. They were not written in the first century. The Gospel according to Thomas, um, the Jesus Seminar filled with liberal theologians tried to make the Gospel according to Thomas written in the first century. There's far too much evidence that points otherwise. The Gospel of Peter, probably written around 140 AD, not by Peter himself. The Gospel according to Thomas, not by Thomas himself. Um, <clears throat> these are called the pseudepigrapha. Um, the Gnostic Gospels would be those Gospels um, that were clearly written by Gnostics and they have all the elements of Gnosticism. Um, well, I, I don't have quotes uh, readily at hand, but they, 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 they speak of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy or a young boy making doves from clay throwing them up into the air and they become living doves and they fly away. Okay, there's a, Gnostics uh, gravitated towards mysticism like this. There's, the miracles are for a wow factor, not for a purpose of redemption. Okay, and ministering to the needs of mankind. All of Jesus' miracles did this, but you don't find that to be the case in the Gnostic Gospels. So they have elements of Gnosticism throughout their teachings and I believe can be readily recognized as such, and the early church recognized them as such, and said, no, they are not to be included in the canon. So the canon was closed by the apostles, and we have to ask the question then, why is it that we choose 27 books? What are the ground rules for this? And forgive me, I'm, I'm not going to read these passages, I'm just going to throw them out there, because I've got three minutes, and I didn't leave myself enough time here. But John 14, 20, Jesus told his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he told them that the Holy Spirit would speak truth to them and would lead them into all truth. This is specifically for the apostles. There are other such passages in which Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring, the Holy Spirit is going to bring everything that you need to, to mind so that you can record them. He's going to, the Spirit is going to do this and he is commissioning the apostles to, to, um, to be the bearers of this truth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 2, Peter speaks of the apostles being the ones who revealed the commands of Jesus. This was a special anointing given to the apostles that even though I believe apostles exist today, they are in a completely separate category. The twelve apostles of the Lamb with, uh, with Paul being one born out of due season, they would be, excuse me, <clears throat> they would be, those twelve apostles were specifically commissioned for this task. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, New Testament, and the prophets, which would also be New Testament, but more Old Testament. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the apostles for the new, 
the the prophets primarily for the old they are the foundation on which the church is built Old Testament New Testament for us to have scripture it must be revealed and sanctioned by these apostles um, 2 Peter 3 15 and 16 I am going to read that to you and I know I've got to hurry but 2 Peter I can just quickly turn to it here we go 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It says this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul, this is Peter writing about Paul, just as our brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand that which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do what? The other scriptures. To their own destruction. The other scriptures. What did Peter just say about Paul's writings, about Paul's letters? Some some of which can contain hard things to understand. He said they're scripture. They are the writings. They are from the very heart of God, revealing the commands of Jesus. Everything flows through Jesus, through his apostles, and I am now going to say they're associates and therefore sanctioned by the apostles. Now this is important for us to understand and why we would reject anything that people would supposedly say today, including Muhammad, who wrote several hundred years after Jesus, the Gnostics who wrote in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. No, they did not write scripture because only the apostles and their immediate associates that they commissioned that they, that they uh, extended their oversight, put their eyes on and said, yes, those, that is what we must call Scripture and therefore the canon. Okay? Nothing more. Nothing less. Okay, so the Peter is basically saying that it is generally recognized in the church that Paul's writings are Scripture. And this is written before Peter dies in 67 or so, A.D. Paul died shortly after him. And he's giving this assessment. This is Scripture. Paul's letters. This is Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 5, I am going to go just a few minutes over. 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says in verse 18 and 19, for the Scriptures, or the Scripture, the, the writings, say... Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You don't have to write that down, but that's the Old Testament. We've already concluded very clearly. Jesus, all the others, his contemporaries, that's scripture. And so we already know that. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. That is scripture. Okay. But then he goes on and he gives us another quote that is not from the Old Testament. And he says, the worker deserves his wages. And, and here's my question. Where is that ever found? We find a similar quote in Matthew, but the Greek is slightly different. Here's what we find in Luke chapter 10, verse 10. Excuse me, Luke chapter 10, verse 7. We find the exact Greek words. Paul was quoting 
from Luke's Gospel. He was not quoting from some early Christian or early church oral tradition because that was not written. This is the writings, not the speakings. So this is not oral tradition that he's quoting from. This is something that's written down and it's found in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And of course we know, having read Acts, that Luke was a very close associate with Paul. Paul put his eyes on his writings. Very possibly, Luke finished his gospel and Paul knew about it because he read it while he was being uh, under house arrest in 61-62 AD in Rome. And he quotes from it and he calls it scripture. So Paul is lending credence to Luke's gospel, and I would venture to say since Acts is Luke part two, if you will, it's, it's a continuation of this story. It's the, the, the works of Jesus now through his apostles, that that is, receives Paul's stamp of approval. So when we're talking about the New Testament canon, it is the apostles, and now as we see here, it is we see Paul saying Luke's writing is scripture. And therefore the apostle himself is lending credence to someone who's very close to him. So it's the close associates of apostles. Um, we would also see that these scriptures that are written are just like the Old Testament. They're cohesive and not contradictory. So when you read something like the Didache, which was written most likely in the first century AD, it was not, it was not given the stamp of scripture. And because the early church realized that there were some things in it that seem to speak of like baptismal regeneration. No, that's not true. Baptismal regeneration is not what scripture teaches. And so people did not recognize the Didache, which means the teaching, did not recognize it as scripture. The early church did not recognize the shepherd of Hermes, which was read in churches and, and highly valued, but it contained some things contradictory to the New Testament, so it was not recognized as scripture. They would even say, uh, Clement, let me just read, or excuse me, Ignatius, who wrote around 100 AD, he said, I do not order you, as did Peter and Paul, they were apostles. I am a convict. They were free. I am, even until now, a slave. The... The clear implication here from Ignatius is that he was not writing scripture like the apostles did. I'm not commanding you as the apostles could because they gave, they were inspired by the Spirit through the commands of Jesus. But I'm not doing that. So they, the early church held Ignatius' writings in high esteem but recognized these are not scripture. Okay? And the bottom line is, what the early church recognized, I mean, they were not the ones who made the 27 book scripture, they simply recognized the hand of God in these 27 books, written by apostles and their close associates, recognized God is speaking to us. 
like he does not in the Didache or the Shepherd of Hermes or Ignatius or Polycarp or Clement of Rome or any of these people. They are unique. They speak powerfully. They compel us. They compel us to embrace them as the Word of God. And so, that is why when we read Scripture, and next week as we get into inerrancy, there is something so absolutely unique about this book, all 67 books, that speak from the very heart of God to us and compel us to embrace them, not simply as the words of men, but as men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking forth the words of of life. And, And these are the books that not just speak truth, but truth that sets the poor sinner, the captive to sin, free. That is the power of Scripture, and no other writings of man can do that. Let's close in prayer. Uh, and if you have questions, um, I'm going to entertain them afterwards. Okay? But I'm going to close in prayer right now. Father, I want to thank you that these books, these men that you spoke through and, and wrote these things down for us, not just to enjoy, but to live by, they are powerful. They transform us, God. And when we read them, we, we, we have this inner sense. These are spiritual things, spiritually discerned, and they speak from your very heart. They speak life to our soul. They revive the soul. And I just want to thank you, Father, that that is the very purpose of your work. God, would you, every time we open your word, would it revive our soul? Would it speak the deep truths that set us free, that invite us into this awesome journey and relationship with our Creator God. Father, may You speak to us words of encouragement, words of challenge. These are not just the words of men. They are the very words of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm. Uh,